The title of our series is In Him and For Him. And as you read through the book of Ephesians, it becomes evident very quickly why the series is entitled In Him and For Him. First three chapters of the book of Ephesians are all about doctrine. It's all about the indicatives. Uh, The ESV Bible, the study Bible says it this way. It says the book of Ephesians is full of the gospel from start to finish. In fact, there may be no other book in the entire Bible that packs in as much gospel per square inch. The first half of the book is almost nothing but gospel explanation, while the second half is almost entirely gospel application. Mind-boggling indicatives followed by grace-filled and grace-motivated imperatives. Everything we know to be true and good and lovely and pure and right in our lives, every blessing that we've experienced, uh, election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, inheritance, and the promise of eternal life are all because of what Paul declares in Ephesians about who God is and what God has done. And he says it's all because of what God has done for us in Christ. In Jesus Christ. Now, I, I never assume, even in a, in a group as this, this size, this small, that everyone is a believer. Everyone knows Jesus Christ. And to be in Christ simply means that we have put our faith in the saving, finished work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And that we've trusted Him for our salvation and not our ability to earn God's merit, God's favor, God's grace. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That Christ has died for our sins. And if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, even as we jump back into this series, my appeal to you is come to Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Be one who can say, I am in Christ. And because I am in Christ, I can live for Christ. That is my appeal to you today. That is the good news of Ephesians. That is the good news of the gospel. Now, who are the Ephesians? They're mainly Gentile Christians, as we talked about just a few weeks ago, living in a very decadent and dark city, much, much like New Orleans, that you would see at, at, at Mardi Gras time, if not most other times in, in the world. It is in not an easy place to live. It's not an easy life to have in Ephesus. It is a, a city that is filled with idolatry. The, the god Artemis, or Diana, lived in, was a statue was put into a temple, a temple so large it was the size of three football fields. A temple that attracted most of the city to worship this fertility god, which only stirred immorality in the city. And it was a wealthy city, so materialism and greed was as much at the heart of that city. And it's this place that Paul spent three years. It is this place that Paul now writes to this church. These Ephesians, prior to knowing Christ, 
prior to coming to faith, they would have proudly identified themselves as citizens of Ephesus. They had status. But when they came to Christ, everything changed. Their, their position changed. Their new identity in Christ, rather than exalting their status, that made them rubbish in the eyes of those around them. They were cast out. They were ostracized. They were rejected. They suffered for their faith. Many years ago, on my, one of my first trips to India, I was at Love and Care Ministries, where a very dear friend of mine, Yesu Padam, uh, leads Love and Care Ministries. It's a church planning ministry. It, it leads, uh, just has made literally thousands of men and women, Hindu men and women, to Christ. And they have planted churches throughout South India. It's just an amazing, amazing work of God in that place, in a very dark place, because you know, you're talking about a place that worships millions of God. That's what Hinduism is. And, and Yesu Padam would, he would take me around to different villages. And there was a village that was about four or five miles from Love and Care Ministries up into the mountains past where, where they were. And he took me up there one day and introduced me to an older woman, probably, um, well, let's see, she was probably in her 50s. So she's a younger woman and uh, <laughs> very young woman who had who had come to faith in Christ just a few years earlier and in India as a woman a, a woman has very low status and when she came to faith in Christ and rejected the millions of Hindu gods her husband worshiped her husband threw her out of the house into the street and that's where she had lived for 2 years And in that two-year period, she walked four miles every Sunday to Love and Care Ministries to attend the Sunday morning meetings. And then she turned right around and walked back another four miles. And the village, not just her husband, the entire village had ostracized her. But she remained firm in her identity in Christ. And when I came to that village just another year later, there was a church planted in that village. And many had come to Christ because of this woman's witness and testimony, including her husband. Including her husband. She did not let let this trial, this serious issue affect her identity in Christ. She found her identity in Christ not in her status, not in where she stood in her husband's eyes, where she stood in the village's eyes, which she lost her status. She found her identity in Christ, regardless of what she had lost. And, and we do as well. And the, the Ephesian church, the same. Our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, is not about who we are in this world. It's not about our material blessings. It's not about our occupations. It's not even about our roles as husbands and fathers. It's about who we are in Christ. Men and women who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
men and women who have been created by God to worship God. That's our identity. And we are in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. We are children of God, as Paul says here. And in, as Paul writes in this morning, the last time we, we went through Ephesians, we went through verses 1 and 2. This morning, we will be going through Ephesians 3. And, and it'll be 1 through 14, but we're going we're gonna to concentrate on verses 3 through 6. So read with me, starting in verse 3 of chapter 1. This is the Word of God. Follow along. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, we, we ask for help today. Lord, these are, these are rich words. These are deep theological truths. Lord, this is the mystery of Christ revealed to us. Lord, help us to see it clearly. Lord, soften our hearts and open our ears to hear and understand the Word of God that we may become conformed to the image of Christ for the glory of God. And God, help, help me to speak your word with clarity, with strength. Help me to speak your truth in such a way that these dear brothers and sisters encounter Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul wrote these words to inspire us to inspire us to lead a life of praise, to lead a life of praise no matter what our position is, no matter what our experience is, that our identity in Christ is secure, like this woman, <coughs> excuse me, in India, to lead a life that we find our identity in Christ and we praise Him for it. That's why 
Paul writes these words. And in these 14 verses, you, you see God on display. You see Paul putting God on display, similar to uh, uh, like back in the olden days when there were no real malls. You realize that malls are not like been around for 300 years, right? When I was a kid, everything, you shopped outside. You went from store to store. I mean, yeah, everybody old in here is shaking their head. Yeah, we, we did that. You, you didn't have these indoor malls. And, and I remember as a kid growing up, similar to, you ever see the movie A Christmas Story with the Red Rider BB gun and, car, you know, they, there's, a, there's a store and, and they have these Christmas window displays. And, and kids would press their faces against the glass because the trains would be going. You'd see the Red Rider BB gun. You'd see all these things. And, and that would, that's, that's my memory of Christmas. And that's why I like shopping at outdoor st- stores because you don't have these huge, massive openings like you do in malls going into Macy's. There are these little doors, but then there's these display windows. And you see in each display window, whether it's the dolls for the girls or the guns for the guys or whatever. And, and that's what Paul's doing here. He's putting the Trinity on display. Verses 3 through 6, you see God the Father on display. Verses 7 through 12, you see God the Son on display. In verses 13 and 14, you see God the Spirit on display. And as Paul, in, in these opening verses of this, this passage, verses 3 through 6, Paul, it, it's, he's, he's speaking, it's sort of he's gushing forth the praises of God. In fact, Ephesians 3 through 14 in the Greek is one long run-on sentence. Pity the English teacher who would have to, to teach this. It's one, no, no commas, no periods, no stops, no pauses, no breaths. Just one long run-on sentence. And for, for us, the translators have, have made it easier. In verses 3 through 6, it, you see Paul just, just gushing forth these praises about who God is and what God has done. I mean, Marilyn recently wanted to buy this thing called a, uh, a Vitamix. I, I call it a Vitamax, a Vigevet Vitamax. It's, just, it's, this, it's this machine that she said is just going to change my life. Um, and it's going to make me healthy. And, and so she's, she's explained to me, she's got it on the, uh, the computer. And she's reading off this list of things. That it makes smoothies. And it does this for vegetables. And it makes soup. And it, and it makes everything. You know, it does this and it does that and it cuts up vegetables and on and on and on and on. And, and it's got a motor, a professional motor that goes so fast it'll take you to the moon. I mean, it's just, it's just everything. And she's just gushing forth. And that's what Paul is doing here in verses. He's just gushing forth who God is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just verse 3 alone. This section gives us a wonderful view of of who God the Father is. These first 14 verses are known as a a doxology. Do you know what a doxology is? I learned it. I learned it when I first became a Christian. And and it's it's one of the songs, actually, it's a we we did as a growing up, when my kids were growing up at a family. Our prayer before dinner was to sing a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I will not sing it. Um, my daughters can sing. And so they would lead us off in, in song. And, and we would pray. That's a doxology. It's just a hymn, a song of praise. And that's what this is. It's a doxology. It's, the, it's the, who we are in Christ. It's our identity. Is that we're doxologists. That's who we are. We, we live for praise. And it's, it's not surprising that the man who was an enemy of God, who imprisoned and murdered God's people, who blasphemed in the name of Christ, but one day found himself an object of mercy, writes this doxology. That he could say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That he would take a murderer and an enemy of God, which is who we were. Praise God. And, and Paul's heart expresses a profound gratitude for all he has been given in Christ. So let's look at verse 3 first. What are the heavenly places? Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that word blessed at the very beginning can also be translated praise. And it's, it's actually the, it's where we get the word, um, it's eulogy, eulogy. Eulogio is how it's pronounced in the Greek. And we have a eulogy at, at a funeral. We, we tell, in a sense, the praises of people. A eulogy. We sing, we sing their praises at a funeral. We communicate at a funeral these wonderful things about the person who just passed away. This eulogy is our, is our doxology to people. And Paul is saying the same thing here, this eulogy of, of who God is and, and what he has done. And, and the heavenly places here he speaks about are, are not just in the heavenly realms. It's not just, I mean, he, has, he is thinking about our time in heaven. He is thinking about a future place. He is thinking of a, a not yet for us. But he's also thinking of a now, of what God is doing for us now, had, how God has blessed us now, the, the wonderful blessings that we've experienced now. But we are, we are a, a people that live in, in a sense, two dimensions. We live in a physical dimension, but we live in a spiritual dimension. In fact, later on in Ephesians 2, Paul speaks that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Not that we will be seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. There is a spiritual dimension and, and thank God there is. It's that spiritual dimension where we come to the throne of grace for mercy and help in time of need, where we pray. That is a spiritual dimension. We have a spiritual enemy, a spiritual warfare that we battle. There is a spiritual dimension to our lives. We are seated in heavenly places. And God has blessed us in Christ in heavenly places. The now and not yet. And the blessings that Paul recounts to us are both a now and not yet. Election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, grace, sealed by the Holy Spirit, our inheritance, are the many blessings that we experience. It's, it really is every blessing we experience. Paul says here, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual 
blessing. It's not as though there's additional blessings to come. I mean, literally, we have every spiritual blessing. And God the Father has given them to us in Christ. It is because we are in Christ. God the Father has given them to us. And the biggest blessing of all is that we are in Christ. So the point of the the passage, I believe, is just let us be grateful with praise rather than grumble with complaining in light of all God has done for us in Christ. Let us be grateful with praise rather than grumble with complaining in light of all God has done for us in Christ. So two points this morning. First, the object of our praise and the reason for our praise. The object of our praise and the reason for our praise. Now, the object of our praise, Paul says here, is God the Father. Uh, This is pretty obvious. I mean, even us North Carolinians would say it's not rocket surgery to understand this. Um, I could have said a Maryland grad, and I didn't. It's very obvious who Paul is talking about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's doxology begins with directed towards the Father. And Paul makes sure that we know he is the object that is worthy of our praise. Look at how Paul describes God's work and blessings to us. In verse 3, he's the creator who blesses us in Christ. In verse 4, he's the sovereign one who chooses us in Christ. In verse 5, he is the sovereign one who predestines us in Christ. In verse 5, he is the loving father who adopts us in Christ. In verse 6, he is the righteous judge who accepts us in Christ. Our heavenly father is the source of all our spiritual blessings. And that is why he is the object of our praise, our doxology. Because of all he has done, praise is what God richly deserves, especially in light of all he has given us, what we don't deserve. Everything that follows in in these verses, every description of every blessing supports why Paul praises God. The reason, and and that leads us to to point two, which is really the, the, the largest point this morning, is the reason for our praise. I mean, the object of our praise is so obvious. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, which we'll study next week, in Him, speaking of in Christ, we have redemption. And then in verse 13, in Him... You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's obvious who the object of our praise is. But there's a reason for our praise. What God has done for us. A description of our spiritual blessings. In verse 4, in Him, even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him even as he chose us in him. All of us have an experience of being chosen at some point. 
I'm, I've, I'm a former PE teacher, high school basketball coach, so I'm athletic. There's just, I mean, there's nothing to apologize for. I'm, I'm, I'm athletic. And so, you know, when it came time to be on the playground and you'd get chosen, I wasn't the last guy chosen to go and play right field. I, I wasn't. Typically, I was the guy choosing. And, and I, I just, I never worried about there. But, but, then, but then came school. And I, I wasn't chosen class valedictorian. Um, they don't choose number 357 out of a class of 500 to be class valedictorian. Okay, um, and I was glad when they gave out diplomas, they didn't do it numerically, they did it alphabetically. You know, <laughs> the, you, all, but all of us have been in a place where you're, you recognize what it's like not to be chosen, you know, or to be chosen last. And, and here, it, it's this wonderful passage where Paul is saying, even as he chose us, in him. We're, we were chosen before the world began. Now, think about that. This did not exist. There was no world. There were no animals. There were no trees. There were no oceans. There were no land and sea. There was nothing. No mountains. There was nothing. There was the spiritual realm where God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit existed. And in that time, in, in an eternity we do not understand, God chose us to be here at this moment worshiping Him. God chose us in the plan of God before anything was created. Before we were created. God didn't choose us after we were created. He chose us before we were ever born. And before this world was ever created. He chose us, Paul says, in Him. In Christ. Now get your minds around that. The Godhead in its wisdom says, Larry Malamut will be mine before he's ever done anything good or bad, before he's ever had a breath. In fact, before there's even a place to place him, before there's ever a world to put him in, Larry's mine. And God says the same about you. You were his. We were chosen to be united to Jesus in God's sovereign plan. God chose us for his own purpose and pleasure simply because he could and he wanted to. He wanted to love us. And in God's mind, we were chosen not just to be chosen, but to be holy and blameless. We were called to be holy and blameless. We were chosen in him before there ever was even a fall. And yet God knew we would be born with a sinful nature. He chose us. It is, it's just mind-boggling. The doctrine of election has no equal in both amazement and mystery. The doctrine of election has no equal in both amazement and mystery. Mystery. I mean, I, we talked about mystery last time. I wish I, could, I wish I could explain the doctrine of election in a way that is satisfying to you. But 
in my reading, I've discovered that Charles Spurgeon, John Piper, R.C. Spool, John MacArthur, Sinclair Ferguson, um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Jonathan Edwards, um, Charles Wesley, on and on and on. You know what? They, they couldn't do it. And, and so you're not getting it from this PE teacher. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, there's, there's a point where it, it just, you just, years ago when Marilyn and I were first married, um, she would, there were a lot of clothes she didn't want to put in the dryer. So she would hang the clothes from the bedroom door, our bedroom door. So I'd come home from work and there'd be like this wall of clothes I'd have to fight through, you know, to get to the bedroom. And, and, and this was, you know, a couple of days a week. And, and I remember one night I came home from work and, and, I, and I, was, I got through the clothes and, and my son David was about a year and a half, two years old at the time. And, and we'd gone to bed and it was probably one or two in the morning. And, and I heard this just massive scream, you know, that blood curdling, two-year-old scream that, that just every bit of adrenaline rushes to your brain and, and you jump out of bed. And I, and I did. I jumped out of bed and, and I, I hit that wall of clothes. And, and I'm trying to fight through the clothes and I'm, and I'm getting through and there's like clothes everywhere. And I finally get through the clothes and I hit a wall. I, I, I'd actually run into the closet rather than to the door. And, and, and so, so in the background I hear... I, <laughs> What was that? Athletic, huh? Yeah. <laughs> hey, it was dark. It was dark. And, and that's, that's how I feel when I get to this, how do I explain the doctrine of election? I kind of get through this, this weeding of, of all the different things and, and I can explain certain points, but then I get a wall and it's like, I can't go any further. Why? Because it's mystery. And it's a mystery that's amazing. And it's a mystery that is good. It is a mystery that, that creates humility in us. It's a mystery that creates trust in us. It's a mystery that makes God big to us. I want a big God. I don't want a small God who I can explain. It's a mystery to us. But it, nonetheless, it is truth that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless so one of the reasons why we worship why we praise God is because he chose us before we were ever born to be in him and to be holy and blameless not just to be chosen but to be holy and blameless. I mean, there's, a, there's a passage in, in Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs, where the writer says, I have created the wicked for the day of destru- destruction. That's choosing too. Romans 9, I, some were chosen for noble purposes and ch- some for ignoble purposes. We were chosen in him to be holy and blameless. That is a reason to praise. But, it, but Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, in love, in love we were predestined. He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose. Or there, the NASB says it I, I guess better, says according to the pleasure of his will. Or it also says to the kind intention of his will. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as sons and daughters according to the kind intention of his will. So you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. You were predestined before the foundation of the world to be his child because he loves you according to his kind intention, according to his pleasure. And there is no other reason found in Scripture to explain this other than his kind intention. Not because I am so athletic. Not because you play music well. Not because you're so good looking. Not because you just have a good heart. He simply chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and to adopt you in love through Jesus Christ because of his kind intention and the good pleasure of his will. Does that not want you, make you want to praise him? I often, I do, I often think about where I would be today if God had not chosen me. I, I extrapolate back 38 years to when I got saved, knowing what my life was like. And I think, hey, where would I be today? And it is a very ugly and sad and tragic picture of where I think I would be today if God had not, in the kind intention of his will, chosen me, predestined me, adopted me, made me holy and blameless simply because he's kind and it was the pleasure of his goodwill to love me and to love you. That's a reason to praise, but there's one more. And that's, and it's not, it's not a word mentioned here, but I think it's a concept and an idea, and that is Assurance. Assurance. God becomes the object of our praise because we're assured that we are always the object of his love. He is worthy to be the object of our praise because we're assured that we are always the object of his love. If God chose us in him before the world began, he will not ever separate us or sever us from Christ. In fact, Paul writes in Romans, who can separate us from the love of God? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is no one. Not life, nor death, nor any other thing, nor principalities, nor height, nor depth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He united us to Christ and he'll never undo that uniting, that work. He'll never undo that. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of Christ. 
If you are united to Christ, if you are in Him, if you are chosen, if you are predestined, that's for eternity. You can't undo that. There's no walking back on that one. It's not like we ordered the Washington Post when we first got here and and a week later we canceled it. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, it's just like, nah, that paper is not worth it. It's just not worth it. That's not how it works here. Oh yeah, I'm just going to cancel my subscription with God. Or he might do the same to me. No, we were chosen in him. God's approval of us because we are in Christ. He sees Christ, not us, and it will never be rescinded. God's approval will always be there. Jesus never displeases God and never loses favor with God. And because we are in Christ, neither do we. There is nothing we can do. God's pleasure is always upon us. We are here. We are in Christ because of his kind intention. God does not back up. And then finally, look at verse 6. God, Paul, Paul ends. He, he just creates a bookend and he ends where he began. To the praise of of His glorious grace. So he starts out, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose or kind intention of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And, and the NASB says it, I think, better. It says, with which He has bestowed upon us His love. So what He's referring to is His grace. To the praise of His glorious grace which He bestows upon us. So Paul is just running wild with all of the blessings that we have in Christ. Chosen, holy, blameless, loved, adopted, predestined, given glorious grace. Because of his kind intention. God freely bestows grace upon us. What an amazing God we serve. We are loved by God. We are blessed by God. We're given immeasurable grace by God. We're united to Christ by God. All for the praise and glory of God. So what, so how do we apply this? What's our application Well, I I think actually there's a good application because you've got to remember who was Paul writing to? He was writing to an Ephesian church that was living in a very dark place, tempted to lose their identity, tempted to, I would think, just like anybody who lives in a difficult season of life, 
tempted to grumble and complain. And only one question I think is appropriate to ask is really, in light of just even these, th- these four verses, what could ever keep us from praising God? What should ever prevent us from br- praising God? Is there anything? And, and, and I believe to a person you would say, no, there's nothing that should keep me from praising God. But how many of you complained once this week, just once, about something? Where, where was... Now, only three people raised their hand. Wow! You are an impressive group. Maybe I should give this message somewhere else. <laughs> we all complain in our hearts. It doesn't take much in life to tempt us to complain. Sometimes it doesn't take much for me to slip into grumbling or complaining. In fact, actually all it takes is a school bus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's like my entire lot in life. No matter what road I turn on, when I turn on a road, there is a school bus in front of me. And it's not empty. It's never empty. It's just beginning. <laughs> It, it just, it was created out of nothing. It came out of nowhere. And there it is. And all I want to do in my heart. Yeah. Rain down fire in heaven on that school bus. Get rid of the children. Keep the driver, but get rid of the children. I just, it's like every, every three feet. Now, when I was a kid, we walked five miles to school. <laughs> But these school buses nowadays stop every three feet. <laughs> Houses aren't even that far apart. Every three feet. And the temptation to grumble and complain. And our minds get shifted away from these truths about who our glorious God is. And I'm sure your trials seriously are more serious than mine, whether it's physical suffering you're going through or marriage difficulties or family difficulties, family anguish with children or financial strain or people opposing your faith or just your fear about the future. I, I understand these, these are temptations that, that can draw our hearts and our minds away and, and we, can, we can grumble in our hearts and we can complain. Why? Why am I here? Rather than saying, why am I here? Paul was in prison when he wrote these words. These are, this is a prison epistle. He made a conscious choice to see life spiritually, not temporally. Whatever it is we're facing, we can choose praise over complaining. And so in view of every spiritual blessing we've been given in Christ, really, what do we have to complain about? We should be singing a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.